Hello and welcome to the week of work. Uh, I'm your host this week, Dave Gibney. I'm joined by my co-host Michelle Byrne and Claire O'Connor. Um, this is a very special weekend. International Workers' Day is May the 1st, and we'll get into a little bit of that in a second. Um, so there's there's festivals going on all, and, and marches and demonstrations and all sorts of things going on all over all over the country, but also all over the world. So um I, I suppose before we get into the news, will we talk about International Workers' Day, guys? Michelle, do you yeah, want to? Yeah, welcome uh, back, Dave. It's also a special weekend because Dave is back. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Go on. Well, welcome back to Dave. And of course, you just have to wait until it was, you know, International Workers' Day to make a point, you know. Um, but no, a, a, a great um, a great weekend to mark. I guess it's like one of both hope and struggle to kind of, you know, think about that, like, I think about last year how I spent May Day in Cuba and how it was such a celebration of workers. Um, and then when I come back here, I feel like we're talking about all of the struggles that we face. Um, and we kind of forget to have that kind of celebration of like the work that, you know, we do and the struggle that, you know, we essentially hold up the sky. If we all withdraw our labor, you know, the world would stop. Um, and I think that's important to recognize our power um, as workers collectively organizing um, and celebrated today. Um, I know a lot of people will also call this May Day, but I feel like that pulls away from the fact that this is International Workers' Day. So, um, yeah, so I think that's important to to say too. But obviously there is a huge struggle ahead of us as workers. And currently, like, you know, we, we talk about here all the time, um, whether it's from, you know, the record number of homelessness that we're reading about this this weekend, whether it's, uh, you know, the political corruption that we face, whether it's the bad bosses, um, and the wages that don't match the cost of uh, the cost of the you know all of the prices going up, the cost of living. I don't like saying cost of living crisis because it's not like <laughs> we should be able to live without calling like you know the cost of our lives. Like what does that mean? Um, but yeah, I think it's it's an important one to mark, and there's a number of different things happening this weekend. Um, Warford have a, um a rally in the Spanish War the Civil War man- monument. Um. Uh, today, Saturday at um, 3 p.m. And tomorrow we have then on Monday, I think there is in Dublin, there's um, protests in Cork. And I saw one in Galway with the carb oil workers as well. I believe they're they're marking um, May Day there or International Workers Day as well. So um, that's great to hear too. And I think during, during the week as well, we also had an important day, to, uh, the International Workers Memorial Day, uh, where we mark you know, the people who have died um, during work. And actually, looking at the figures, and it was 461 people died at work in Ireland from 2013 to 2022. That is a lot of people who have died for work. Like, And I think, you know, it's important to note that, like, unionised workplaces are safer, and that's really important. Um, You know, like, by law, employers do have a responsibility for their health and safety and I just want to note as well that that is like physical and mental health as well because I think that's such a a prevalent thing to in in workplaces at the moment too and employers can just kind of dismiss that's not their responsibility but actually it is um but yeah so that's the whole um marking that day is important I know there was a big day in the Garden of Remembrance where at CWU a number of other people were uh, gathering to mark the the people who passed during work but I guess the important message from that day is to kind of more on the dead and fight light hell for the will with the living which is obviously um a great theme for this weekend as well when we talk about you know and uh, the international workers day and the struggle that we have going forward so i guess um you know a, a lot around this week as well there's a number of different political festivals um i don't know if they're actually necessarily time to tie in with the fact that we have the may day celebrations but we, it just does so happen but um i, I might d- does anyone do you want to say anything before I move into the festivals and my chat about some? Because actually, one of them got covered in the news this weekend. Very yeah. No, I was actually yeah. Just wanted to mention that our own Glenn Fitz is actually DJing at a rave as part of the James Connolly Festival. So that's from the eighth to the fourteenth of May, and on the Saturday night, the twelfth. Yeah, Glenn Glenn Fitzpatrick from Left Block is one of the DJs. Um, so if you want to go online, give a Google to James Connolly Festival. There's a whole week of events there, and some of them are brilliant. But yeah, definitely catch out Glenn on the Saturday. It's definitely yeah. like there's no nothing surer in my mind than James Connolly would be at that rave if he was around today. Like that's 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 really important. Yeah, he's raving in his grave. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> keep the session going, keep the struggle going, you know. But just, just for our listeners as well, just on the whole International Workers' Day, May Day festival and a little bit of the history of it, you know, the Haymarket um affair or as it's known 
in there's a multiple names for the Haymarket Square riot or the Haymarket massacre or um but but the reason that we have May Day um is a continuation actually of the the eight hour day campaign and it was in Haymarket in Illinois Chicago Illinois where um uh, there was a there had been a a rally on May first and then um after that and it's it's interesting that you just mentioned it there Michelle um a worker was killed in an accident in McCormick Harvesting Machine Company and as a result there was a protest took place on I think it was the fourth of May and at that protest somebody threw dynamite at the uh, police officers who were present killing seven police officers and four uh, civilians um well up to or around four civilians i don't think they're too sure how many people actually died in it um but anyway the the whole affair was that they they blamed a bunch of anarchists for it without any evidence and there was only evidence actually that there were only two of the 10 i think it was 10 people who were sentenced to to death um as a result of the 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 stitch up by the police um 10 people sentenced to death two of them were only two of them were present at the actual incident itself. So there was no evidence against the other eight. They were just being killed by the state and the state machinery for being anarchists and their political motivations. But that, and it's maybe you might, might want to talk a little bit about this, Michelle, because um, following on from that, we had the eight hour day movement over, well, all across the world. That was part of the eight hour day movement. But the first city in the world to achieve the eight hour day was Melbourne. And you're just back from visiting the monument I saw um, over there in the trades hall in, in Melbourne where, where, um, what year was it? It was 1858, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, around 1858, a bunch of Irish trade unionists and a couple of others decided to down tools, um, citing the fact that it was too warm out that day, which is not really in the history book, saying that it was too hot and they didn't want to work more than eight hours in the heat, the Melbourne heat. But because of the timing of the year, it actually wasn't that hot. It was um, the official record showed it was 26 degrees that day. They were using it as an excuse to not work. And as a result of that major strike and that walkout of work, um, they achieved the first legislated eight hour day in the world. So it's, uh, yeah, it's important to remember our history around some of this stuff that it wasn't that the bosses decided, you know what would be good? We'll bring in an eight hour day for the good of the workers and the benefits of them. And they weren't the ones that brought in health and safety legislation. It was workers combining um, and and standing together in solidarity um, that managed to win us all the eight hour day. And it's sad that we haven't actually progressed any further. I don't know, Michelle, if you want to top that up. Yeah, yeah, I think it's important to remember for it's it's not just it's been hundreds of years we haven't been able to handle the heat in Australia, uh, believe it or not. But uh, um, yeah, it's interesting the Irish link there. I was very uh, fortunate to be uh, over there with Skype and off the pod for a couple of weeks. Um, going over talking to uh some of the workers over in Melbourne, they have the trades hall there, um, which is full brimming of history, which I'd recommend anyone to go and see and speak to. Some of the workers there, they're um, a wealth of knowledge uh, when it comes to uh, some of the struggles that they had there. Everything from their anti-conscription campaigns to their anti uh, to their uh, pro-abortion campaigns, and now they're talking about um, bringing uh, First Nations uh, people's voices back to the table when it comes to uh, the land. Um, and and so they're having a referendum then again this year and the trade union movement they're very involved but yeah very interesting to uh hear of the Irish links there um and and quite quite funny actually that it was to do with us uh not being able to handle the, the, the weather but like also important argument to have because we've actually spoken about this I think it was last year when the there was like heat waves here and we we don't have any legislation for heat here because oh, we, do. Never... we do oh we sorry do. for not for heat for cold was it cold no no heat we have we have maximum temperatures in ireland in the workplace for cattle we don't have it for humans yeah yeah so yeah so i remember us talking about that um last year and and thinking like you know we've never had to have that conversation but of course we've had that conversation in australia where it was like 26 degrees and we were uh couldn't handle it um like i was it's winter over there it's well it's coming into winter over there at the moment and i was still like in my summer clothes like <laughs> not handling the heat very well <laughs> being the typical irish tourist over there but i was actually talking to someone about this the other day about the priority of the capital estate in ireland like that and how powerful the farmers lobby and all the rest is but that we actually have better health and safety legislation for cows than we do for humans but that, that you can you can't transport cattle in in um trucks that are too warm and you can't keep them in sheds that are too warm and all that but workers can be forced to work in 35 40 degrees heat 
in you know it, it, now in fairness there is health safety legislation so if people are listening to this if you are put into a situation where you're in like a, a store or something and you're expected to work in 35 40 degrees heat and there's no water available and you're feeling unwell you can remove yourself from the the workplace under health and safety legislation and tell your employer that you are available for work when they provide a health uh, um, a health and safety provisions around the temperature and all the rest of it. So it's, again, you're better off doing this stuff and being protected by being a member of a trade union. So we'll we'll add that little bit in as well. As don't don't be taking matters into your own hands. Take advice from your union and remove yourself from any incident or any sort of space that might not be safe for you to work in. Um, yeah, and, and and just to reiterate as well, because there's been a couple of instances recently where I've been chatting to people who often will only care about, you know, membership of a trade union or a tenants union when there's already an issue. And I think, you know, if we really truly believe in solidarity and building like collective strength, whether that's campaigning in the workplace or wider society, that we really need to be thinking about actually joining the unions, not just sharing the stuff online, not just talking about, you know, or turning up to the protests and not just uh, talking about, um, you know, how the great work that trade unions and people in trade unions are doing. We really need to be joining those unions, being active members, becoming involved in the structures and making a change internally. But yeah, I think that's just important to note because I've had a number of people kind of reaching out, looking for advice on, you know, um, what do I do? Or this has happened or this is happening or um, and it, it, across trade unions and tenants unions. So I just kind of want to make that point if uh, anyone's been holding off for a while. It's May Day. It's May. It's International Workers Weekend. Now is the time to take that action today. Fair. And also, yeah, like for people who maybe don't work outside the home or outside care responsibilities, there are options available to you. So like that, you can join Katu. You can join Unite in the Community. You don't have to be employed. You don't have to be working to to take part in the trade union movement and get involved in active organising. So I think every week for the past maybe six weeks, we've encouraged people to join Katu on this pod. So, yeah, I think that's a good hey, one. Claire, to, Claire, do you want to give your description of Katu that you gave last week? What did I give? Community Action Tenants Union? Yeah, oh, you... yeah. I'm sorry. I got a bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> this is exactly what Claire said day. last week. Let, let me quote it for you. Katu is a union, but it also has a radical element to it. So, um, I mean, <laughs> listen, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't, you know, when I first started to work, I wasn't involved in a union, trade unionism. I had family members who were, you know, like staunch trade unions had been shop stewards and stuff like that and was, was raised. Jesus, me Nana would have bet you out of the house if she, if you crossed the picket. Like, you know, we were raised with that mentality. But, you know, for a long time, I don't think a lot of us thought that there was a radical element to trade unions. Now, I know there's some amazing wins being done and there's, this trade union is doing incredible work. But yeah, I think that I think in Ireland that kind of sense can still be there sometimes as well. Yeah. I mean, I think when you look at what's happening over in England, um what's ha- you know, what was happening with the, the RMG and stuff like that, and um, that a general strike looks possible. I don't think anybody believes a general strike would be possible here. And I think when that's off the table, it takes a it does feel that that radical element is gone. I think anything should be possible within the trade union movement. Yeah, and you see, like the tenants, tenants unions aren't like held back in the same way. Can't use the you know the excuse of like yeah. there's laws in place where we can't do X, Y, and Z. But um, I actually just come from the Katu summer school this weekend. Um, so there they were talking about uh, the first couple of talks. It's on. It's continuing over the whole weekend. So if uh, anyone's around, you should definitely engage in some of the talks there. It's uh, non-members can access it too, but they'll definitely be pushed to to join as well. But um, a couple of interesting conversations because it was talking about like that individual casework and like often tenants unions are kind of like, and I suppose you could apply the same to trade unions where you're like helping individuals to solve the issue that, you know, that's facing them, whether it's eviction, dodgy landlord, whatever it is, rising rent. But they were stressing the importance, especially they were talking about, you know, how uh, public housing campaigns and tenants unions, that it's not just about casework and that individual one-to-one, that you need to also connect it to a wider societal struggle and actually use that collective then to start fighting for. And the example was public housing and how um, how that that that's a really important part. And I think that's important to think about in trade unions as well. Like often people join because they're like, oh God, this thing is happening. You know, you know, the potential can be made redundant down the line or whatever it is. Like, you know, it tends to be a moment where people join. Um, but actually, we should be thinking about that wider struggle. Like, what are we collectively fighting for as workers? It, all, it probably is housing as well at the same time. It could be, you know, uh, lower um, uh, age for retirement. It could be, you know, there's there's so much more collective struggles there as well that we need to be thinking about. And it's not just that individual service-based um, 
level of um, trade unionism that we need to be thinking about. So I think that's really important. And it, it was delighted to see that kind of conversation happening at the Cashew Summer School. And they were also talking about, you know, um, you know what tenants unions look like in other, uh, in other jurisdictions as well and the different struggles and learnings and it was really interesting because there was a number of international trade unionists or not trade unionists well some a lot of them were trade unions as well but uh, tenants unions who were there from london manchester scotland who were uh, who were over to talk about the differences in organizing there and how we can learn from each other so i think that's going to be happening again in the next couple of weeks with a lot of the people involved in trade unions bringing over people to political festivals so we have um, the James Connolly Festival, which Claire's mentioned there as well. But there's a number of different discussions at that. I have to plug the the trade unions uh, radical or redundant talk because I'll be chairing that. Um, mm. and there's an, yeah, yeah. There's a we have Eddie Dempsey over for that, and then there's a number of other ones uh, around tackling racism in our communities, talking about uh, the church um, and the the violence that the state committed against women. Lots of stuff around Palestine neutrality, neutrality um, and really a focus on war and peace and like talking about like the workers role in that as well. So I think that's when we talk about the wider struggle. What are we talking about uh, when it comes to that? So I think definitely have a look at that. But then there's another one to flag as well. Uh, the Robert Tressel Festival, um, which is described as a day of debate, drama and song. And there's again, we ha- I think we have Eddie. Uh, speaking there as well but we also have our own uh, Dr Conor McCabe who's going to be talking about money um, uh, along with a number of other people including Michael Taft so there's and, and they're also talking about universe, uh, organising and diversity as well so have to flag all of that and of course then our own festival Left Block Festival um, people should be getting on the Patreon um, to to get the the early details of that, um, but it'll be coming in the next couple of months. Um, and uh, Patreon Patreons, Patreon Patreons, um, they always get the the access to the details first, and it sold out very quickly last year. So this is your your heads up. Tickets were gone in an hour last year. Um, we have seventy. I checked it the other day. I think we seventy two patrons at the moment, and there's only hundred and ten or so tickets to initiate. So if you want the tickets, <laughs> they get in early. Claire. Just on what, yeah, just to follow on from what Michelle was saying about Katu and the summer school, um, and anybody who hasn't kind of gone back to the trademark Belfast podcasts, I think the first or second podcast the trademark ever did, you know, uh, and it was Sean Byers, uh, Stephen Owen, and Mel Curry, and they talked about the service and model of tra- trade unionism and how tra- Irish trade unions kind of have moved into that service and model as opposed to, you know, a radical organizing, a community organizing model. And I think even for Katu, like everything you said, Michelle, but also, what I love about Katu and why I really try and encourage people in the community to get involved is because it gets them used to the idea of kind of grassroots solidarity, of organising, of knowing that you can kind of, you know, collective action power. And at its most basic level, I think like that's what we need to be doing. It's really hard to get people into some of the more organised campaigns and single issue movements, I think, um, you know, without people kind of drifting off again. So I think that's what I just love about Katu. It's that it's, it's at such a community level. It's so grassroots. It's small actions. People feel like they're making a difference. And then people get addicted to that. <laughs> we do. That's why we're all here. You know, you, you get involved in the small stuff. You realise you can make a little bit of a change and, and that sucks you in. Yeah. yeah, and there is such an importance for political education. Like we talk about it here, trademark talk about it. Um, you know, we need to learn obviously from our the struggle, whether it's in our workplace or you know, in our as a tenant. Um, but we also need to be learning about like the power dynamics there, the interconnected struggles that to give a better give a better understanding and more conviction to you know those struggles and i think you know it's great to see militant trade union leaders from britain speaking here in the next couple of weeks but perhaps that's indicative of where our workers aspire for us to be um you know the, having those collectivized strikes general strikes and um, for those big impacts so hopefully we'll be getting lots of inspiration lots of people will be listening and um plan for the year ahead yeah speaking of which um the I was last night I'm in Derry and I was at the Derry Trades Council event last night that they held over in the Waterside Theatre and it was the screening of the 406 film the documentary about the Debenhams workers and they had a number of Debenhams workers present as well to speak and Eamon McCann was a, a guest as well as the the producers of the of the the show and the author of the book Fergus Dowd um excellent event if people uh, can can get their hands on this because the the film itself was at first screened at the Dublin International Film Festival and it won the international it won the actual film of the festival award but it also won an international human rights film festival award and it's been entered in a, a range of other ones it's it's um it's a very inspiring story of the Debenhams workers who 
you were on the 8th of April 2020, started a pandemic, received a generic email and were told you're gone. You've no job left anymore. And some of them had 30, 40 years service within the company. You know, prior to Debenhams arriving in Ireland, it would have been known as Roach's Stores. And that's the, the household name we'd all know. But they were all just let go without the um, collective agreement they had signed in 2015, which was for a four week pay per year of service redundancy. And um, so they actually had to claim 13 million off the state. So that's us taxpayers paying to bail out a company that actually ran away, including Bank of Ireland, by the way, with about 200 million euros worth of um, of profits from it. So, again, taxpayers paying for uh, employers making profits. But um, it's a fascinating story. And they, they, they track it, you know, the name of the film is 406 and they start with 000, you know, the day that they're getting their email and then it, 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 you know, it, it progresses through all those days through the strike up to the 406 days and um, giving personal stories from all across the country. And what I find really inspiring about it is that this wasn't one group of workers in Dublin or one group of workers in Cork, but we, we had 11, there was 11 picket lines all across the country and 95, 96% of the people on the picket lines were all women and they were militant and they weren't, you know, political um, I asked the question at the event last night, uh, where he's politicized before this, and they all said, no, this this has made us, this has opened up our eyes to the, not just the political system and who it represents, but the legislation that exists that hammers workers and why workers are at the bottom of the list when it comes to creditors in a liquidation scenario, whereas banks and, you know, the, even the liquidators themselves are always the, the priority. They get their money first before the people who actually built that company for 30, 40 years which is, you know, obviously an injustice that, that people want to see change and, and those workers. Um, uh, Carol Quinn, actually, from Tala was saying, you know, she she's still campaigning for the Duffy Cattle legislation to be implemented so that nobody, her, she says it in the movie, actually, that her children and her grandchildren don't have to have the struggle that she had of 406 days on a picket line trying to block police. But Eamon McCann was really good in his... Um, comments some of the comments that he made about you know the capitalist machinery of the state and when you watch the movie you can see it in play where the guards arrived onto the picket line to remove on several picket lines i know michelle you were on the water for picket line and um i was on the henry street one when the guards came in as well 70 80 guardie came in heavy-handed with angle grinders to pull to 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 um to break the, the 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 locks that the workers have put on the on the gates to make sure that none of the stock the assets were removed to pay you know the other creditors ahead of them so um, but you can see 70, 80 Gardaí arriving in, heavy-handedly taking out women and the screams and the emotion in the movie to watch um, the state kick in. These people were workers who had an injustice done to them, and yet the state is not going and pulling people out of KPMG's offices or Debenham's offices. They're pulling workers, ordinary workers who've never broken a law and still haven't broken a law in their lives off picket lines for standing up for what's right and standing up for what they believe was there. But yeah, it's... Um, Fascinating one, and what again came up multiple times during it, and Amy McCann raised it, but so did the strikers themselves. And Karen Gearan, who uh, was the shop steward from the Dunn Stores anti-apartheid strike, which started in July nineteenth, two thousand, or in nineteen eighty four, and lasted for two years and nine months. And I'm sure most listeners will be familiar with this, but I'll just give you a, a top up of the story again. Just um, uh, Mary Manning was approached by a, a customer and refused to sell South African goods on foot of an instruction from her trade union. Um, and she was disciplined for it. And uh, 10 workers walked out that day in support of her right to not handle South African goods. And they ended up on strike for two years and nine months. And I was lucky enough two weeks ago to be over in London at the play Strike, it's called. It's written by Tracy Ryan. It's on in the Southwark uh, Theatre. And it's running until the 6th of May, which I think is the day the coronation of the new King of England takes place. So anyone who's not into that whole coronation of, of, of kings and monarchs and all, get along to this play because it's far better than anything you're going to see at something like that. But the play is so emotional, so um, inspiring. Again, 90% women on picket lines. Gardaí coming in, beating them up, removing them physically at, at, at points. Other, um, and, and we don't like to say it, but Ireland was a very racist and still is, has a has a lot of racism now, but was a very racist country back in the 80s. And they were spat at. They were called all sorts of names. They stood their ground for two years and nine months to protect the rights of people they'd never met because those people had the wrong skin colour in the wrong country at the wrong time. Um, and they won and had 
you know, all South African goods legislated for, banned from Ireland. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a brilliant play. And hopefully next year, with it being the 40th anniversary of, of the strike, we'll be able to run the play across Ireland. But we, we're going to need a bit of support to try and get that to, to happen because there's 16 actors. The actors are phenomenal. They're all Irish actors, which is brilliant as well. We met the actors afterwards. Um, so all these 16 Irish actors over in England doing a play about an Irish strike. And the night I was there, actually, there was a whole heap of people from the... Uh, the British trade union movement there as well. And there was media and it got massive write-ups in the Guardian and other places saying how great it was. It's an amazing play, but it's just, it's sad that it's a story that so many people have never heard of. And we haven't had a chance to bring it around the country here ever before. It's only been shown in Ireland once in 2010. Um, So hopefully next year with the 40th anniversary, we can get it. Anyway, I'll move back on to maybe Claire, if you have any stories or anything else you wanted to touch on before we. I mean, I want to talk about, Michal Martin's attack on the ditch um, because particularly for a podcast like ours that kind of looks at the media and how the media looks at stories and communicates them to people I think it's it's just absolutely outrageous but before we get into that I want to talk about the biggest story on the Irish Times front page um, on the website officials told to preserve files from time ESAT was awarded mobile phone license so basically this is about um, Declan Galley's taking a case he he lost the him and Comcast lost the, the ESAT license from Dennis O'Brien um, back in you know the nineties, and obviously it was the most lucrative uh, license awarded. You know, I, I they I think still in the history of the state, but um, it built Dennis O'Brien's whole career. It built his media empire, and why I think this is so important is because one of the criticisms that Mike Michael Martin leveraged at the ditch was that they weren't independent, that they had a backer in Paddy Cosgrave, and that that made it all politically motivated. And we have a media system in this country that has that has almost, you know, the majority of it has been owned by Dennis O'Brien for a long, long time. He doesn't anymore, but he did for a long time. This is a man who has been found to have actually donated to Fina Gale, <laughs> who was found to, you know, have engaged in corrupt behaviour by paying my, me, our Lowry um, for the, the ESAT licence. And Michal Martin had the neck to stand up and accuse this tiny um, operation with two... Uh, journalists as being somehow politically motivated and so basically this story is that you know they've gone back to officials across seven different departments they've asked them to hold identify and preserve all diaries files computers laptops anything they have relating to it because the state are going to vigorously defend this the state are going to so the state are going to spend god knows how much money defending a defending a claim that really has already been settled in the Moriarty Tribunal because like Moriarty found that corruption happened. Lowry and um Dennis O'Brien had engaged in corruption for that sorry for that license to have been given to him. So the state are gonna spend a fortune in defending that. But the hypocrisy in the state currently being engaged in a court case like that and then Michal Martin standing up during the week. So what he did was he obviously the the Nile Collins story has been rolling for weeks and it will maybe get into that then after the Michal Martin stuff. But so there was calls from the opposition for him to stand up and do a question and answer session. Because the first time, the first story the ditch broke about, which was that he hadn't uh, he had lied on his plan and application to build his house. Um he didn't do a QA session. He stood up and he gave a statement that didn't answer any of the actual questions. And it's this bullshit we see all the time where politicians will come out to look like it's optics, to look like they've answered questions but they haven't they've created a statement that has nothing got to do with the questions in the first place and then they're like oh well i've already answered that questions and now i'm not you know engaged in anything and so this is obviously an even bigger story the the ditch what the ditch are alleging and have a serious amount of data through fois and limber county council and you know like official paperwork could be criminal and is, is very likely a criminal offense you know you can't a, a county councillor can't engage can't vote for anything that would you know financially or materially benefit a spouse and it's very clear that he did. Like we can all see that he did. They've now come out with paper. They've now come out with another document. So one thing I think that the ditch do that is incredibly smart is they they drip free it. So they'll put a bit of information out. They'll let the politician come back and deny it, and then they'll give out another document that'll show that what they've said in their statement is as a lie. And then they let them catch themselves up. And 
the response from Michal Martin during the week is obviously, it was hysterical. He stood up in the doll and he used doll privilege to completely, to make allegations. He was talking about Che Bowes and how Che Bowes, you know, works for Russia today. And, you know, getting into this like conspiracy as if there are all these Russian sleeper agents, like it's absolutely farcical. But he completely undermined them. He said that they're contributing to a toxic and nasty um you know, uh, environment online and that uh, he he's a Democrat and he believes in the democratic system, which he obviously doesn't because he was doing this whole attack on the ditch to prevent Niall Collins from having to come out and answer some democratic questions from democratically elected opposition TDs. But he, what was really interesting was the next day, a journalist stopped him and asked him, you know, like his opinion on it. And he doubled down on it, but he didn't say anything about, he didn't make any of the allegations around, you know, the kind of Russian influencer. He didn't mention individuals and he didn't say anything that would get him sued. So he's using his doll privilege, basically, to attack these two journalists. And it's just outrageous. And I think the the ditch had a, an cover, you know, a, a Twitter space the other night. I signed into it, you know, listening to it. Like, it's like a live podcast Uh and there was at one stage, there was over 700 people listening. And I think that that, like, you know yourself, when you do a live podcast, like, you don't get those kind of numbers. You know, people might listen afterwards. But I think that shows the interest and that shows how kind of riled up people are by what's happening, but also how interested they are in what the ditch is doing. And that's the kind of public support that's grown. And Michal Martin and the government are running scared because they actually see this. They are being held to account in a way that they just never have been before. The ditch are responsible for two junior ministers stepping down, the head of... um. Board the, what? Board yeah, the head of a Like and I, I think what's happened is they're like if we if we if we allow them to kind of make Niall Collins have to step down, then we're in a position where it's just gonna keep happening. It's gonna destroy them. And it's like they're just not willing to do that. So they've gone on the attack. And I think they've underestimated the work the ditch has done in terms of the proof that they have. So when I on that call did I asked them, is there a criminal complaint? You know, is there an actual criminal complaint gone in? Some people have made criminal complaints. So I think what's going to be interesting now is how the guards react to it. Because the guards are just another extension, just like a lot of media are another extension of the state. Um, and I know that journalists in some kind of mainstream media have tried to cover this and their editors have stopped them. Their editors have stopped the stories due to legal concerns. And what we saw was was that the it, the, it only started to be covered in mainstream media when a statement came from government. So they covered what was said in the doll. They covered a statement. Mm-hmm. And then it started to roll. But um, And now you have an ex- extension again. So uh, Paul Murphy has made a complaint to SIPO. And you have Michal Martin coming out and saying basically that Paul Murphy is politicised, or sorry, weaponising SIPO. And he says that this is, a, um, this is an extension of something that Paul has been doing for a while. Like as if... SIPO isn't there to make complaints to if you have concerns about corruption. So basically, he is weaponizing. He's weaponizing the only elements in the state that are there to actually investigate corruption anytime they're used. So if it's not going in their favor, they're going on the attack. And it's it's awful. Like it's uh, what he said, what they stood up and said in the doll was absolutely horrific because the ditch is this small independent um investigative journalism organization. And what they're trying to do is completely discredit them. Mm. Mm. And like it's interesting, like you, you have it bang on there, Claire. And I think it's interesting around what, like how Michal Martin is using the doll privilege, but yet the ditch can't respond in any way that isn't completely legally sound either. They're like subjected to de- defamation laws. He's already started mentioning the words defame, uh, you know, all of that as a, almost like more underlying threats. Um, but yeah, I do think it's a very dangerous precedent, you know, that he's setting attacking. Uh, you know what probably is more truly independent media and um, that are doing really good political investigative work that has resulted as you say in resignations in the court cases Um, he's making it sound like he kind of says as you say it's like a conspiracy you know but actually what is actually happening here is not only are they good at investigative journalism but they're very good at social media marketing um, alongside that so that that's really interesting and actually I, I want to flag as well the Dublin Inquirer uh, did a piece um, one of the co-editors there Sam um, actually did a piece investigating why no one investigated the story the Nile Collins story because obviously everyone was online saying yeah. why, is there, why is no one covering this and um, you had Gavin Riley kind of try and do a little thread about explainer as to why couldn't touch it um, until he had the official documents in his hand and FOIs take a while as anyone who's taken F- who has ever done an FOI will know but interesting enough 
Sam actually went and asked in the Dublin Inquirer, actually asked all the journalists, like, why didn't you cover it? And then they were like, well, why didn't you cover it? And then Sam gave an explanation as a journalist as to why he didn't cover it in a local based um, paper that wasn't his site as the piece because it was such a big story. They weren't willing to maybe just take the ditch's word for it that they wanted to get the, the, the hard documents themselves. And that's why the delay in FOIs. Very, very interesting insight um, to some of the background in that. Something that's really interesting just on the FOIs that you mentioned there. So, Ditch obviously went and they got a couple of FOIs and they had, um, they released, you know, one at a time. But other publications had went to Limerick um, Council and asked for the same information and were basically told, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll come back to you. And it was like, as in, we'll come back to you in the time frame that is there for the FOIs. And normally what should happen when one FOI has been released and it's in the public domain, that information should just be released. And then when the, when the ditch got the FOIs, they were the redaction, there were redactions in there that were so extreme that the only conclusion could be that they were trying to, you know, be involved in some kind of government here because they, they redacted uh Emer O'Connor's name from minutes from the actual council meetings. Now, the council meetings are public record. So they're redacting information from public record documents so it like it was actually it was crazy and then on top of that they then released another document which showed the actual um document that said who was like that that who was uh, the proposer was to buy the the land so it said on one document that was released to the public that there was a proposer one person and the name was redacted and that was Emer O'Connor on another document that they got their hands on it had said proposers but there was two people looking to buy as in co co-purchasers basically and there was clearly two names redacted out so when you look at the two of them side by side the s on proposers had been tipexed out so someone had taken the original documents and tipexed stuff out to make it look like only one person was trying to buy it not two now the fact that Niall Collins is at the center of this controversy his wife is the one that bought the land. I mean, most people would come to the conclusion that the, the co-purchaser was Niall Collins. And then they realised, well, this is an absolute shitstorm and this shouldn't have, like we should have never been this stupid to have this so publicly available. And someone has gone and redacted all that information. I mean, they're, they're dancing themselves in circles around dates and, you know, when, well, when the actual, who had the authority to sell the land. He voted on a motion that was going to, you know, have a, have a benefit to his wife. End of story. I mean, it's as black and white as that. But also, the argument of the government now is that, well, the land wasn't sold for 20, uh, 2008. But now another document from the ditch has come out to show that actually it went to sale agreed in late 20, or 2007. So none of those questions are being answered. So a full council meeting had to be had to agree the disposal of that land. But as far as the council officials were concerned, they, they went sale agreed on that in late 2007. So it's as clear as day what's happening and what the government are engaging in, is, and it's what they always engage in, is smoke and mirrors. You know, they're going to try and confuse things as much as possible. They're trying to distract onto the ditch. They're trying to create any story they can so that people don't come back to what is really important here. And that is, why is Niall Collins not standing up and answering the actual questions that people have? And it's like, I, I think we need to make sure that we don't let go of this because this is what happens. They use smoke and mirrors. We forget about it. We go on to the next scandal. He, This cannot be allowed to be forgotten until he answers those questions because it makes a farce of every system we have if if they can just continue to get away with this. But I, I also think it's, you're right that the circling of the wagon, wagons here is really indicative of the mentality of some of the leaders of those big political parties who are back in Collins, like, you know, if they had any, you know, sort of principles whatsoever, they'd be saying, actually, Niall, you need to answer questions here. And that, that's all they need to do and take account just to show that, our, uh, you know, we have a democratic system that might work every now and then. But instead, they're all trying to protect them. They're coming out. I saw Stephen Donnelly's uh, comments the other day as well. You know, you know, I think Niall Collins' statement has um, clarified the matter and everything's fine here. And w- like, Niall Collins' statement actually came out and backed up the allegations that have been made against them. So, you know, there's yeah. all that. And what I do, you know, take a bit of pleasure from is the fact that the NUJ, National Union of Journalists, has come out and condemned Michal Martin um, for attacking um, the ditch and say they've said that his comments are not acceptable in the doll, which is, is really yeah. strong from the National Union of Journalists saying, you know, yeah. politicians, what was the quality they had a... Uh, 
journalists who criticize or challenge public figures can expect expect criticism and um, it is inevitable that there will be profound disagreements between those who exercise power and those who seek to hold them to account media organizations across all platforms are not above scrutiny and are capable of responding robustly to criticism um, but they go on to say what happened in the doll using jolt doll privilege is an interference in the yeah. journalist's ability to do their job and hold power to account. So we must not forget that this is what this is all about, is holding power to account. Um, and the power doesn't seem to like it and they don't like the rules that they constructed themselves. I mean, where did the defamation laws that we have in this country to protect the likes of Niall Collins come from? It came from this party, this particular political party yeah. and this particular government. So I don't know why they're crying. Um, they should be saying to Niall, sorry, lad, you're gone. This is it, and you need to step up. But I think they do sense that the the, the implications for that are fairly extreme, and um, yeah, they don't they don't want to. I face mean, if you look at like Fina Gale, have um, who is it? Uh, like they've they're losing people, you know, by the week. Like their TD is like Michael Creed, um, has announced he's not going to run in the next election. Uh, John Paul last week, Fina Gale, uh said he wouldn't run the next election. So like they're they're losing people, you know, so not only are their numbers dropping, both parties are losing people. And if they lose another minister, I mean they I also think I'd say even Fianna Fáil's own supporters are looking at, at them thinking, why? Like absolute gobshites. Like the mishandling of all of it is so bad. Now they'll still vote for them because they don't have to think they're competent. And this is why the capitalist system is so problematic. They don't have to think they're competent. They just have to know that they look after them when it comes to it, that the votes will go their way. And that's what, that's why the system will never work because ultimately you, they're clowns. Some of them are absolute clowns up there. They, they're literally performing um, a farcical circus act. And yeah, there is a certain section of society that will always vote Fianna Gael and always vote Fianna Fáil because when it, when it comes to it, they will look after their interests. Can you imagine if this was Sinn Féin? Can you imagine if this was Sinn Féin, what Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil would be like in there? And also, just one last thing, and a lot of people have been talking about it, how Micheál Martin spoke to Holly Cairns like, was so patronising, was so dismissive. And I think everybody talks about Micheál Martin being this super nice, you know, oh, he's a decent man, he's a nice man, you know, don't agree with his politics. But And I think when he's under pressure, you see what he's capable of and you see, you know, his, his kind of true instincts. And that was it the other day. The yeah. nastiness, it was intimidation. He was using his power to intimidate the, the ditch and then he was dismissing what he saw as this little girl across the aisle you know telling her that he's in politics a long time and she needs to not be so naive and I mean that should just be the end of him in politics as far as I'm concerned but yeah it was it's it's dark stuff yeah can I can I tell you the story about the to- only time I ever met and had a cup of coffee with Niall Collins <laughs> so in 2014 he made contact with Mandate Trade Union and asked myself and John Douglas, the ex-General Secretary, to meet him for a coffee over in Buswell. So we went over to see what he was looking for. And um, he he sat us down and said to us, uh, now I'm looking for you to sign um, a, a petition in support of planning permission for a new Lidl in Limerick. Um, and we were like, well, we're the union representing bar and retail workers. Like, And he said, yeah, that, that's exactly why I'm not. I think your signatures on this petition to support planning permission for a new Lidl would be very, very beneficial. Um, and supportive because you are the union representing retail workers and and John Douglas explained to him you do understand that Lidl are an, a completely anti-union employer who won't sit down and negotiate with us have no respect for organized workers and he said yeah but you also represent low-paid workers who can only afford to shop in Lidl so I thought it might be beneficial to your members in the area to be able to shop in a Lidl uh, rather than these stores that they perhaps work in incredible level of arrogance from the man but up to his neck in planning permissions for employers and for corporations um but yeah that that's my one and only experience and i, I just remember looking at him and going my god what are you thinking michelle have you got anything else there i'm actually just a bit uh don't know what to say after that to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I'll, I'll go to Claire. Go to Claire. Claire. <laughs> Do you know what? Actually, kind of relating to that as well. There's a there's the examiner has a story 
Budget surplus will allow tax package for middle earners for Articatels Fianna Gael. So we talked about this last week. We talked about the, the 10 billion surplus and how Bradford said it wasn't a rainy day fund, that it was going to be going into investing and all these, you know, really, you know, sound um social protections, basically, you know, like th- this is this is what they were kind of putting forward. But now we see well. We, we knew what was going to happen last week. So the party leader said that there will be a welfare and pension package which will hopefully be similar to last year. But ultimately, they're going to take all this money and they're going to reduce taxes. Like that is that is the level of their imagination. And like we said, these are always going to look after the people who vote for them. They are not there to represent all of us. So they're going to take a, a historic level of surplus that we have in the middle of a housing crisis where we've seen, again, record numbers. We have nearly 4,000 children in homelessness at the minute we have over 11,000 altogether um and instead of you know pumping that money into social supports into capital spending public infrastructure you know the education system the healthcare system housing just absolute housing across the board if it means just buying up every empty house in the country and then stopping selling it back to council tenants i mean we need to stop the practice of you know spending all this money in acquiring housing and then selling it to people uh but ultimately, that they're not going to do any of that. They're going to take this massive opportunity and they're going to just reduce taxes and give people, you know, a little bit of extra money in their pay packet, which isn't going to actually make a massive difference to anybody in the long run. And it's just absolutely infuriating. And it's like Fianna Gael are going to Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil are their lackeys. And like this, this was always how it was going to happen. Um, and again, this is like they're going to do this before the next election to try and buy a few votes hope that they get back in in some capacity. And if they don't, try to leave Sinn Féin with a lot less money in the exchequer to actually be able to do what they're saying that they'll do. But this was all at a par- private party meeting, basically. You know, so he basically said that with the expected 26 billion budget surplus. So obviously there's 10 this year. It, it's going to increase for the next three or four years, I think. Um, So that this year and next year's budgets will have three main aspects. Spending, the tax package and setting finance aside. He said the priority will be middle income families and earners who pay too much tax. He said there will be a welfare and pension package, which will hopefully be similar to last year's, which means that the welfare and pensions won't be increased. Like they certainly won't be proportionally increased, but they are going to increase the, the tax reductions. So we, even if we talk about middle income earners, what's the one thing we hear constantly from people in middle income brackets? Childcare and mortgage are absolutely equivalent people. So why not actually put that money into a truly um free childcare system, mm-hmm. a public childcare system that would save families, some families close to a mortgage a month. Yeah. And that's gonna that's gonna have a, a much bigger impact than maybe fifty hundred quid in people's pay packet every every month. It's just so like you know, you'd either have to think they're completely incompetent with no imagination or that this is just the ideology they're wedded to. And I think at this stage we all know that this is just they don't they don't want to do those things for a reason because they do, those things would start to impact the capitalist system and they want to uphold it. End of story. Yeah. 100%. Um, I, I've got a heap of stories that are all sort of linked in the Irish Independent today, so I'm not even going to get into all of them in depth or anything, but you mentioned it there. The homeless total hits record high of 11,988 people. Um, surging food prices keep inflation rate high. IMF says interest rates should continue to rise until mid-2024 and then like talk about being out of touch like a you know cost of living crisis they use the phrase and all the rest of it but then I love this bit Flutter the um, owner of Paddy Power um, has awarded their chief executive uh, Peter Jackson a, a share incentive that's currently valued at 22 million euros so you know we talk about the cost of living crisis cost of capitalism crisis is, is the, the real issue here it's you know it's there's still a lot of people doing very well same same as during the austerity years a lot of people doing very very well out of this who are not being taxed who are being able to incentivize um you know bad behavior let's just say because I'm, i know i've raised it on the podcast a few times before paddy power workers in ireland had to be taken to the wrc multiple times because they wouldn't allow their staff to take lunch breaks but their chief executive gets 22 million now the guy was already earning 4 million euros a year anyway but he's getting a bonus of 22 million now so you know you know and then front page of the irish independent three supermarkets to cut the price of milk 
And I'm like, oh my God, this is great. Fair play to these great supermarkets who are looking after, you know, people and saying like, and they actually all released press statements about how great they were for looking after consumers and cutting prices. So I said, you know, very quickly before the podcast, I'll just Google the most recent profits that each of the four supermarkets made. Aldi had operating profits in Ireland of 40 million um, in, in its most recent accounts. Lidl, 41.1 million. Tesco, 1 billion <laughs> super value uh, their profits uh, went up 12% to $110 million last year. So, you know, they can afford a 10 cent cut on milk, but the in- complete disconnect to be issue all of them issuing press releases about how great they are for reducing the price of a two litre carton of milk by 10 cents as if it's brilliant and fair play to them on, on that stuff. Claire, you um, just... Yeah, they'll probably only give you this, that discount, Dave, if you give away your data. So there's been a discussion around as well around the use of like the Tesco yeah. program. And like, you know, toothpaste to be like nine euro if you don't have one or like four fifty, you know, like this kind of like literally half price um of goods if you use the Tesco club card or not, because they're collecting your data on how you shop and like what people are buying, what what you're buying with. And then it's very likely that they're also selling on that data. As, and I was reading an article during the week, actually, a statement from Tesco. And they're like, oh, you know, we're just trying to reward our loyal customers. But actually what they're done is they've, Double the price for anyone who doesn't want to give their data away to be sold off to God knows where. Like it's just, and it's just probably a conversation for another day around, you know, how our data has been used and sold. But yeah, I just want to point that out. They can say, oh, we're giving our 10, 10 cents away, but I'm sure you have to actually give your data away for that 10 cents as well. Yeah. Um, and there's whole stores in England where you can't get into them without a club card. So they're like these, you, you scan yourself in. Yeah, can't get into the shop at all. But, so there's nobody on the door. It's all self-service. It's, yeah, and you have to basically scan yourself in. They're trialing them over in England. Wow. Incredible. The future. It's here. <laughs> Shit. Um, Michelle, have you any other stories before we wrap up? Claire, what about yourself? Well, yeah, I just want to touch on one or two. I want to, I want to name as well. So Paul Murphy during the week, Um, you know, we... We regularly talk about the far right and they have their gathering communities here. And uh a gang of far right, um, I don't want to call them organizers, but they 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 protested outside Paul Morphy and, and his partner's house during the week and you know they have a, a newborn baby. And like it's just it's obviously horrific. It's obviously we there was a lot of condemnation online, but what was really horrible was that there were multiple kind of government TDs who came out. And we're like, you know, oh, this is awful. But, Paul, can you imagine how Joan Borton felt? And it was like, they will stoop to no ends to you, you know, to exploit these kind of things for political gain. And even in something as, you know, awful as that, literally the far right organised outside, you know, a, a couple with a, a newborn baby's home and trying to intimidate them. Like, they, they're still kind of falling to those games. So just, first of all, solidarity to, to, to Paul and Jess, um, because, yeah, we have to kind of stand against that, that crap constantly um another thing is is that hopefully today so you know that we talked about the citizens assembly on drug use um last week and that that's going to be happening over the next couple of months but the submissions are open today and submissions are welcome from anybody so you know organizations um experts of the sector individuals so if you have an opinion on anything related to anything related to drug use, I think that should be poverty, should be trauma, you know, the type of services that are available. So the massive conversation is around decrim, decriminalization and, you know, uh, people being treated with addiction as a health issue rather than a criminal justice issue. But you can submit anything. You can submit any opinion you have around anything related to drug use. And I'd really encourage people to do so because we're going to hear a lot from experts. We heard from the guards last week. We're going to hear from a lot of stakeholders. And I think it's really, really important that individuals engage with the process you know make a submission and it's you know the citizens assembly i they have a huge kind of governance structure structure there and i think it's we're kind of lauded all over the world the last two citizens assemblies we've had have been way ahead and way more progressive than the government so we have the kind of potential to now whether they implement anything that comes from it is a different story but i think it's really important that we do engage and then the last i suppose update i have is really on the status inquest so the the inquest opened on Tuesday. Um, it was a harrowing day. Like it was obviously, you know, there was mixed emotions for a lot of people because getting there was like has been a long road. I mean, family members have been fighting for forty two years for this. This like there are people who this has been their their everyday life for forty two years. You know, there's been multiple reports, multiple iterations of the campaigns, and then you know the kind of postcard campaign that Lynn Boylan. I remember the very first meeting that we had around the inquest. 
I was in Antona Keegan's kitchen and Enda and Lynn Boylan came to us, you know, and we had a conversation about the potential for this legal mechanism. And it was like a last ditch attempt. It was like, you know, there was nothing else left. And all of a sudden, Dara Macken had had to come up with and basically use the the mechanism that they use for the Bloody Sunday um campaign, that the inquests were the legal mechanism to to have a, a platform where truth and justice can hopefully be accessed. So that was about five years ago. We were taught we were trying to date it um outside and we you know, obviously COVID just throws such a kind of spanner in anybody's like, you know, timeline memory, like it's it those three years feel like they disappeared. But um I remembered I have a six year old and he was toddling in the kitchen and we were like he was a baby so that it was under six years but he couldn't have been you know kind of more than uh two and we were like yeah that was about five years ago and it's been delayed at every possible step and the fact that we were able to start on Tuesday was just massive so it, it the inquest opened with Gertrude Barrett so what's happening is is it starts with things called pen portraits and the pen portraits are basically where a family member um will stand up and they'll they'll read uh a portrait of the person that they lost and who that person was and what they meant to their family and just little snippets of information to humanize them because the jury are in the room and it's basically to humanize them so that when it gets into this really you know um medical and scientific evidence that we remember and we always we talk about the 48 a lot and it's like they were people and they were individual people so Gertrude was I mean it was heroin listening to her and she talked about how she was treated after like the, the the callousness, she called it. She talked, and she was on prime time. People might have seen her as well. She just talked about the callousness of how they were treated afterwards as well. And, and then the impact it had on the rest of their lives. And it was, there were, like, everybody was just in bits in the room. And the the, um, the coroner had, to, like, there was a standing ovation for her, you know, after, and, like, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And the, the coroner had to basically um, call, a, call a break because it's just, it's a huge, it's so emotional for everybody in the room to be listening to and then Carol Bissett's mother and sister um, did the same in the afternoon. And if anybody wants to access those. So first of all, the inquest is open to the public. Anybody can go in. It's going to be running from Tuesdays to Fridays um, until July. Then it will break until September and it'll start again. For the next three, three and a half weeks around the pen, pen portraits are going to be happening. Um, and families, a lot of families kind of are really welcoming of people coming in and sitting and listening to the stories about the people that they lost. You know, that's really important to people. But if you if you can't, you can watch it online. So if you go onto the, the Stardust Inquest website, you can access a link to watch the inquests. And then you can also... um. Sorry, if you go onto the Phoenix Law website, they're publishing the actual pen portraits every day. So you can see the first um three days are up online now and you can read them and you can read about them. And that's just, it's such an important element to this because like it's 42 years, but that was, it was 48 people. There were 48 lives lost. And then the, the kind of the ripple effect of that. I mean, my, my, like my kids, you know, have sat in meetings about the Stardust. That's a third generation who are, you know, and like affected or involved in some way about how like most of my mom, my mom's physical injuries, my mom's like was in hospital a couple of months ago because of her lungs and it was very serious. And that stems back from, you know, her injuries from that night. And it's like it's the it's the people that died, they lost their lives. It's their family. It's their family's children. It's the, the those that survived and were left with physical injuries, those that were left with psychological injuries, their families. The people that were there on the night, the workers that were there on the night, the fire, you know, the fire brigade, like they have the trauma that has rippled through that. And then the community, like my community, I like I was, you know, I was only, was only born five years later, but the trauma that has rippled through the communities that were most affected, like is still there today. You know, mental health issues, suicides, addictions, like it's, it's just absolutely massive. And this is going to be biggest inquest in the history of the state so um it's a really important just even in terms of access to justice and and how people should be treated so yeah i know usually again usually we try to start like it was good news that it started we try to end on a good news story maybe the festivals would have been more of a good news story to end on but just if anybody wants to engage or listen like there are a couple of ways that people can and you know it's and, and can support the families in doing it yeah no, it's a really important moment in, in our history and it's just disgraceful that it's taken 42 years to get to this point because obviously there's a lot of people who are now not around that should have had this justice process in place while they were, were able to see it. And 
Yeah, no, I, I hope um, you'll be coming on every week now to give us updates on it as well, because it is important that um, it's covered. I mean, I've signed up to the journals um, updates on this to, to keep an eye on what's going on on the inquest. But yeah, I think it's it's um, it's really clear you want it in again. Just Yeah. So the one thing is that we've all told be really careful of. And I, this is why I'm kind of talking about the pen portraits and talking about the, the people themselves we have to be really careful that not to talk about any evidence that, you know, we already know about yeah. and that's already out there. And um, like, we really careful not to put it in jeopardy. Now, obviously the journal, Sean has done incredible work. He did a podcast series. If anybody hasn't listened to that podcast series, it's unbelievable. Like it's really, it's, it's, it's the best one that's ever been done on the Stardust. Um, but yeah, like you said, like we are looking around at the likes of Christine Keegan and the parents that, that aren't there. Like, we, we my me and my mom, my auntie were there, and my nana would have been because my ma was still in hospital right through the the original tribunal, um and like my nana fought for years, she was heavily involved, and when we marched to the AG's office to deliver the postcards, she was she was in a nursing home and she wasn't well, and it was raining out that day, and we, she was they had her ready, she was in a wheelchair, we we're gonna pick her up, and it's such a massive regret of mine that we didn't bring her that day. I was afraid of her getting wet and getting sick. Um, because the first thing my auntie said when she got there was my nana would have been front and centre here. You know, like when the 25th anniversary, on the 25th anniversary, I don't know if people know this, but the, the Stardust pub was reopened in the pub as the Silver Swan, which was the name of the pub the night it happened. Like, mind-blown stuff. And we protested. And like, my nana was, morning tonight she was down there at Blackheart you know like she to not see her there like is is massive and we told her that it had been granted even though it hadn't by the AG yeah just before she died Um, but then you're, you're looking at people like uh, like Mrs McDermott was there she lost three of her children that night so and it's one of the first times she was kind of there when she was speaking to the media and it's really important for people to see that there are parents there are parents who lost yeah. their children that are you know like should not have to be out there doing this right now and they are but um yeah no so if everybody can kind of support in any way you can that'd be brilliant yeah great uh, on that note unless anyone else has anything else to add i'll wrap up um this has been the week at work oh yeah last plug for uh the patreon uh the week at work is part of left block and uh we're a political education and alternative media project We'd love your support. Come on to Patreon. And if you are in, interested in coming over to Inish Year for our On School Koshkli uh, event this year, then I'd highly uh, encourage you to, to get onto that before the tickets um, are released in the next week or, or next couple of weeks anyway. Um, but yeah, it's been the week of work. I'm not sure what episode. I think we're up to 134 or something like that. So um, thanks to my co-host Michelle and Claire. And we'll talk to you all next week.